All right. It's great to be back up here with you, friends. Let me pray for us for the reading and preaching of the Word of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord God, that despite the fact that we are sinners and the fact, despite the fact that we deserve your wrath, you've called us into yourselves. And you've given us your one and only Son in Christ Jesus so that we might have the redemption of our bodies. So, Father, we pray, Lord God, that your word would be preached well today, that your spirit would be present here with us, that you would cause us to see the glory of Jesus Christ anew. And by the preaching of your word, Lord God, we might not only understand this passage well and all that it has for us, but also that we would be pointed, be lifted up to see Jesus who died and raised again for us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing on our series today in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles here with you, please do turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. And we're going to be sticking pretty closely to the passage here, just going through it verse by verse. And what you're going to see in this particular passage is kind of a direct continuation of what you saw from last week from Tazar. Last week, we saw that as the church is growing, there's going to be false teachers who's going to try to creep into the church, who's going to try to control the spirit, try to use the apostles' name for their own glory, to try to use the ministry of the church to point to themselves rather than to Jesus. But what we're going to see today is kind of the direct contrast to that in Philip here, the apostle, as he's going to minister to this Ethiopian eunuch, and we'll take a look at what all that means and all the significance of that. So today we're going to take a look at three points. The first point, the responsibility of a minister, as we're going to see that in Philip's ministry here to the eunuch. The second point, we're going to see something about the inclusivity of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And thirdly, we're going to see much about Jesus Christ and his spirit as the head of the church that the apostles are just ministers under him, and it is Jesus himself that builds the church. But before we get to that, let me read the passage here for us. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. Thus says the word of God. All right, so we're turning here to our three points, right? The first point for our passage here today is the responsibility of the minister. And to really get at the responsibility of the minister here, we need to really grasp the characters in the story. The, the story is so powerful that I think just by going through the story itself, we can get the sense of the passage and, and how Jesus is pointed to in this passage. So who are the characters here? The character is Philip, who we've already seen before in Acts chapter 8. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the first generation followers of Jesus. And he's been preaching, and then suddenly Philip is called down by the Spirit south of Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, the center of Israel's worship, towards this desert place. And the second main character in this story is this eunuch. And you see this eunuch again in verse 27. Notice what it says. Notice that Luke is really concerned to make sure you know who this person is. Okay? He's an Ethiopian, which means that most likely he was a black African. He's a eunuch which is an official title, but, but it, oftentimes it means that this person has actually been castrated. He's a male person who's been castrated, therefore he's been sexually modified, changed, altered for his work, and a eunuch normally has to be uh, uh, castrated precisely because they would be responsible to be close with the royal family. And because they were close with the royal family, they needed to be kept away from particular temptations, and because they were close to the royal family's possessions, they needed to focus on that work. And so to be able to be officiated into their work, they needed to become a eunuch and become sexually modified in that respect. It was a very common practice back then. So not only is this person an Ethiopian, a black African, a eunuch, and so sexually changed, he's also a court official of Candace, which follows through given the fact that he's a eunuch, right? So he's kind of a, an outsider in three levels, isn't he? He's an outsider racially and ethnically. He's not a Jew. And so by definition, he's outside of Israel's worship. He doesn't get to take part. Secondly, he is a sexually a minority. He's been sexually altercated. And so considered really of lower status, especially according to Israelites' worship. And thirdly, he's an official of high ranking for a foreign, unbelieving country. A threefold minority intersectionality, just completely, totally are the lower of the lowest in terms of Israel's worship. And yet this person, right, Ethiopian eunuch court official of a foreign country, would go to Jerusalem because he was interested in Israel's God. He was going to Jerusalem to worship, and who knows if this was the first time or not, perhaps he was regularly already going there. Because remember, if you were interested in the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, you had to go to Jerusalem to get closer. You needed to depend upon the priests and the sacrificial offerings there, the temple that was there, to get close to Israel's God. And yet, probably every time he went, he would have been reminded that he couldn't get close enough. We're going to see the significance of that later on. Okay? 
So that's the two characters here. You've got Philip on the one hand, the apostle, and you've got eunuch on the other hand. And look at what happens here. Philip was called by the Spirit to go down, and he sees this eunuch in his chariot, right? And notice verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So the eunuch was returning home from Jerusalem, and the Spirit immediately calls Philip to go to this chariot. And look at what Philip did, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? So imagine the scene, right? He's going home from Jerusalem. He's on a chariot, maybe because of camels or horses taken off the chariot. The spirit tells Philip, go over to that guy. Look at what Philip did. He ran. <laughs> He's running through the chariot, probably looked like a crazy person, just because the spirit told him to. And notice immediately the responsibility of the minister coming through here, right? Philip is not the leader of the church per se, but Philip was simply obeying the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one in control of Philip's life and direction and ministry. Philip doesn't get to decide where he goes, to whom he preaches. Philip simply follows and he preaches the gospel to whoever happens to be in front of him right then and there. The Spirit is the one in control. Philip obeys. Philip says go, Philip runs. Right? The Spirit says go, sorry, and Philip runs. Contrast is to Simon the Magician from last week. Simon the Magician, what did he do last week, if you remember last week's sermon, right? Simon the Magician tried to offer money to the apostles and say, let me have some of the Spirit. Here, let some money so that I can control the Spirit. A false teacher, in other words, tries to domesticate and control the Spirit, tries to make the Spirit kind of their own little instruments to point to themselves rather than recognize that the Spirit is the one in control. A false teacher thinks that the Spirit is below him, his own little power that he can control. But a, a, a right minister, his responsibility, he understands, is to follow the Holy Spirit no matter where he goes to. And this is a very terrifying situation, right? Here's someone who's an outsider in, in, in a threefold way, and Philip, who's a, an apostle who's been ministering to Jews and half-Jews in Samaria, suddenly he's going to this complete outsider. It's a terrifying situation. Not only that, he's got no guarantee that this chariot would stop. Might have been willing to sprint for 30 miles or something while telling him the gospel. Who knows? It's a very terrifying situation, but yet he just followed through with his spirit. So that's the first sub-point under the first point. The responsibility of the minister, firstly, is to follow the Holy Spirit. Secondly, right? Well, the second sub-point from the first point. What is the second responsibility of the minister here? Look at what Philip says, the first thing he says in verse 30. Philip sees him reading the prophet Isaiah, and Philip immediately asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Right? So the eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah on the way back from Jerusalem, and Philip is so in tune with the spirit that he immediately asks him, what are you reading? Let me help you read the Bible. And this is so significant because in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Philip was associated with the signs and wonders of the apostles. And as he was obeying the Spirit, he doesn't go, why are you reading that? I'm an apostle. Let me take that away from you. Let me show you some signs. Which is what we would be tempted to do. Right? If I were an apostle, I would probably like, you got, you know, camels, they're horses now. You know? 
you're reading this book. Let me show you. I can freeze the water. I don't know. Right? I, I, can, I can do incredible things for you. Who cares about that boring little book? It's an ancient text. Let me give you an experience. You can remember, remember all the rest of your lives. That's not what he does. The Spirit, in other words, commands him, and Philip is so in tune that he knows exactly what the Spirit wants him to do. To go there and to teach him the Bible. Doesn't even doubt. Do you understand what you're reading? That's the second responsibility of the minister, to teach someone the Bible. And, and the eunuch, amazingly, here is kind of the ideal congregant, the ideal church member, the ideal person to witness to. Because look at what he says, verse 31. And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? He understands that the Bible sometimes is difficult. And once he sees a potential minister coming his way, he ideally, right, in a very ideal fashion, asks him, help me, guide me into this passage. That's what we want our listeners to, to kind of have immediately, right? Minister, help me understand the Bible. And if you're not here for that, you're not a minister. <laughs> That's an amazing thing that the eunuch was able to understand this. And, and the sense of guide here is someone who would sit with this person or to walk with this person into the truth. Kind of like a, a philosopher or a sage teacher who would walk with someone in wisdom to guide them into the truth. It's a kind of holistic discipleship sort of sense here of guiding. And that's the responsibility of the minister so that they can understand the Bible better. That's what the minister here is interested to do. You know, sometimes when I was in seminary and I was there for, for a few years, I would hear questions from particular people here in, in Jakarta because really Jakartans are not accustomed to people going to seminary, right? They see people in seminary and they're like, they encountered some kind of fairy or unicorn. Like, I've never met you before. You know, what, are, what is that? What do you do in seminary? And oftentimes they'll be like, so do you pray and fast for a couple of weeks and come back? And I'd be like, yeah, you could pray and fast if you want to because that's helpful in any area of life. But that's not what seminary is for. And in fact, you stay there for a few years because you, you have to read Greek and Hebrew and, and church history, church tradition and all that sort of stuff. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard academic training, actually. And when I first stepped into seminary at, at uh, Westminster, one of my former professors, he, at the orientation week, he'd be like, some of you are coming here and you're expecting a spiritual high that you're expecting to be in a retreat for a few years where you're just getting fed and that's how you grow. And he said, let me now pop that bubble for you. This here is a kind of boot camp. And it's a kind of boot camp, he says, to make you specialists in the Bible. And that was an incredible statement, to be specialists in the Bible, but not to puff up your own knowledge, not so that you can go ahead and show off. No, it's so that you can help others understand the Bible better. And Philip understood that immediately. That's, this is why ministers are here, to help people understand the Bible better. And if you don't do that, we're not ministering well. We're not ministering well. That's the key point here, okay? That's what the church is for. And Philip understood this, and the eunuch understood this. And this, at, at this moment, when he understood that he was here to guide him, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So thankfully, Philip doesn't have to run anymore. So the two subpoints, right, is he has to follow the Spirit, he has to teach the Bible, 
Here's the third sub-point under the first point. He has to read the Bible in such a way where it points people to Jesus. You could know the Bible very well, tell you all sorts of interesting things about the Bible. Background context, right? Uh, what kind of clothes people wore. You could really get into the nitty-gritty of the Bible, and you can actually miss the point. Because if you don't point people to Jesus through the Bible, you've completely missed what the Bible's for. Look at what uh, the eunuch here is, is, is reading, and, and notice how Philip handles this passage of Scripture and how he points this eunuch to Jesus through this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of the scripture he was reading again was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So immediately, look at verse, verse 30, 35, right? Philip opened his mouth. Have you heard a quote attributed to Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It's terrible teaching. You can't do it. Who can believe the gospel unless a preacher tells him, Romans 10 says. And here, Philip understood, and Luke wants you to know. This is an emphasis. Philip opened his mouth. And starting with that passage of scripture, right, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, what passage of scripture was this, that, that quotation block there that you saw in verse 32 to 33? Well, it's a passage from the book of Isaiah, it's a passage from Isaiah 53, particularly quoting verses 7 to 8. And here's what the passage is about. The passage is about a suffering servant, the Messiah who would come. And even though the Messiah was innocent, was righteous, was good and perfect, he suffered unjustly for the transgressions of his people. And how did he suffer? He suffered like a lamb led to a slaughter, and he didn't fight back, though he was unjustly persecuted and attacked. Right? So, so the suffering Messiah would come, and notice the central idea of this Messiah here is that he would be a substitute. He would take the sinful people's place. People sinned, people are, are, are evil, and they deserve wrath from God. They deserve punishment. But the Messiah would come, and the Messiah would be perfect and innocent, and here's what's going to happen. The sins and the punishments of the evil people would be put on the Messiah, and the righteousness of the Messiah would be put on the people so that this Messiah would live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. This Messiah would have taken our punishment for us. He was Pierce for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, verse 8 says. And he innocently did this perfectly for us. And here's what the eunuch would have understood. If the eunuch was a worshiper of the God of Israel coming to Jerusalem, he would have known about the sin offering, right? Lambs would be offered up to God because the blood of the lamb was considered to be able to, to clean the sins of God's people. And perhaps the question could have been, how can the blood of animals 
take away the sins of a sinful people. How can the blood of animals do that? And here's a suffering Messiah who would be the ultimate lamb, who would be the ultimate sin offering. And it was because of his work that God's people would become purified. No more blood sacrifices would be needed after this Messiah comes. And so because of this gospel of substitution, Philip was able to point this eunuch to Jesus. Who else is the suffering Messiah but not Jesus? Who else suffered in our place but was perfect if not Jesus on the cross? Who else was not only just a mere priest but, but the ultimate priest? Not only just one sacrifice but the ultimate sacrifice. Not only is just a mere prophet but the word of God himself. That's Jesus. And so Philip told him the good news about this Jesus from Isaiah 53. And it's good news. It's not good advice, not more things for you to do, but a proclamation of this thing that has happened in Christ Jesus. And if you believed in him, his righteousness is given to you, and the death that you deserve is given to him. That's the gospel that he would have preached from Isaiah 53. And now you're already thinking to yourself, you just got to the gospel and we're only in the first point. What are you going to say for the rest of your sermon? And point number two and point number three, because normally we save that to point three, right? Well, I have to get that in the first point, because the climax of this passage, friends, is not in the verses that we just read, but rather the climax of this passage is in verse 36. And this is our second point. The second point is we're going to see something about the inclusivity of the gospel here. What is the impact of Philip teaching this person about Jesus from Isaiah 53? And why Isaiah 53? Why was the eunuch reading this passage? We're going to see something about that. Verse 36 here, it says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And remember, the second point is the inclusivity of the gospel here. Two things from this text shows us the inclusivity of the gospel. Firstly, notice that this is at the side of the road. Luke wants you to know that this is going along some road. And notice again in verse 28, this road was a road leading away from Jerusalem, not toward Jerusalem. In other words, the Ethiopian was going back to Ethiopia, not heading to Jerusalem when this happened. And here's the thing. Where was he baptized? Where was he included in God's people? in a road on the way back to his own country rather than the road to Jerusalem. Here's, here's the thing, friends. What this, this passage is emphasizing to you is suddenly you can clo get close to God without going to Jerusalem. Suddenly you can get close to God without going to the temple, going through the prophets, going through the priests of Israel. Why? Because the true temple is here. Jesus is with you now globally everywhere. No more pilgrimage to take to Jerusalem. Jesus is the true priest now universally, globally, everywhere. You don't need to go to an Israelite priest to mediate between you and God. Jesus is the true prophet. You don't need to go to an Israelite prophet anymore because Jesus himself is the word of God. So Jesus said in John 4 to the Samaritan woman, there will come a day when you won't need a temple anymore, but you will worship God in spirit and in truth. You can worship Jesus as much as you want in the desert place, away from Jerusalem, 
in Jakarta, away from Jerusalem, just as much as he could have in the Holy of Holies. Because the Spirit of God is with us here present today. Jesus Christ has erased the geographical barrier. And that's why we can be here today worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So that's the first thing from the second point, right? The inclusivity of the gospel means that all geographical locations have now been, been completely, all the barriers have been broken down. We can, we can worship him anywhere. But here's the second thing, and this is incredible. When the eunuch was getting baptized, notice the way the eunuch said it. What prevents me from being baptized? Okay, that's actually quite important because other passages of Scripture, when someone wants to get baptized, they could say, hey, baptize my family, or I want to be baptized. Talk about desire or family or something like that. But here, notice the eunuch emphasizes what prevents me. What are the barriers that keep me from getting baptized? What are the barriers? And if you know your Bibles well, quite a lot. Gentile, right? That's a barrier. Official from an unbelieving nation, that's a barrier. But also a eunuch. Major barrier, because if a eunuch was castrated, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says that a eunuch who's been castrated cannot enter the assembly of God's people. Deuteronomy 23.1 explicitly bears the witness that if you're a eunuch, you cannot enter the assembly of God's people. So the eunuch, if the eunuch would have gone to Israel, year in and year out, to try to worship God, here's what's going to happen. The eunuch would have been outside of the temple, looking in if he could, Envious of all the people that would have entered in. Envious of all the people that could, that could participate in the worship of God. And all he could do was stand on the outside and say, because of who I am, sexually speaking, ethnically speaking, I'm barred out. I can't go in. That's what prevents him from being baptized. And, and here's, here's the amazing thing. Luke, remember, wants to tell you that the eunuch has been reading Isaiah 53, right? That's what he was fixated on. Over and over again, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, reading Isaiah 53. Well, turn your Bibles with me, friends, to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verses 4 to 5. And you're going to see something amazing here. Isaiah 56, verses 4 to 5. I'll wait for a second until you get there kind of miss the sound of pages being turned. I'm just seeing this now. And I know I do it too, but I, I kind of miss it. There's something, something about it. Right, Isaiah 56, verses 4 to 5. Here's what it says. Isaiah 56, verse 4. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Notice the emphasis of Isaiah 56. They will be included within my walls. What would the eunuch would think about? Temple walls blocking me. A name above sons and daughters. They can't have children. 
That's how you would have gotten the name. They would be given a name from God himself. And they shall not be cut off. They shall be included. And here's the question from Acts chapter 8 that I think Luke wants all of us to see from the Bible itself, okay? How in the world do we get from Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 that says the eunuch would be cut off, that the eunuch would be thrown out, that the eunuch would not be able to enter the kingdom of God, to Isaiah 56 verses 4 to 5, where the eunuch is now given the name above every name and included within the people of God. How in the world does that happen? Eunuch excluded to suddenly eunuch now prophesied to be included. Where is the transition point? How do we get there? And you know what the answer is? Ready. Isaiah 53. Why? Because this suffering servant, notice, didn't just take away the sins of God's people. The suffering servant was crucified outside the city, outside the temple walls. The suffering Messiah was excluded so that the eunuch could be included. The suffering Messiah would be thrown out and his name was taken away from him. His reputation was taken away from him so that the eunuch could be given the Messiah's name. Here, friends, is the good news of the gospel, right? For this eunuch. He was cast out so I could be included. He was thrown out so I can be saved. He was experiencing the wrath of God so that I could be one with God and one with God's people. That's an amazing, amazing good news, isn't it? And I know you, oh, we're not African eunuchs, right? But I hope you can sympathize with what the eunuch is saying here. Why was he so fixated on Isaiah 53? He was asking the question, who is this man? And here's how you can sympathize with him. Friends, if you have ever felt that there's anything about you that has blocked you out from the kingdom of God, if there's anything about you that can say, because of who I am, God doesn't love me. Because of who I am, I'm excluded from his church. Because of anything that I've ever done in my past, my ethnicity, my sexual history, my orientation, whatever it might be, because of who I am, I am cut off from the people of God. If you ever felt that you have a guilty conscience that tells you you can't be right with God and God doesn't love you, here's the question you need to ask yourself with this eunuch. What prevents you now from being one with the people of God and with God himself? What prevents you now from being baptized? And hear this, nothing. Nothing. Nothing can bar you from the kingdom of God because of what Jesus Christ had done. No matter where you've been from, no matter who you are, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what gender, you can be right with God, and you can now say with the eunuch, what prevents me from being baptized? Absolutely nothing, friends. Whatever's been blocking your conscience, you can accept Christ right here, right now, because nothing can now separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's good news for the eunuch. It's good news for us here and now. Hope you've been thinking about the gospel and, and thinking about Christianity. Maybe it's the first time you've been here. I don't know your background. I might not know you at all. But God knows, and he tells you, come. Come to the Lord's table here soon. Come and be baptized. Okay? 
But it's not it. We have to cover the last few verses here. That's the second point: the inclusivity of the gospel. No geographical bounds. No personal bounds. Anyone can be baptized and be included within God's people. Then we come to verse 39. When they came out of the water after the eunuch was baptized, right? The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The third point. Is that Jesus Christ and His Spirit as the head of the church? You know, lots of commentators have pointed out that the Book of Acts is not really about the acts of the apostles to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It's really about the acts of the Holy Spirit of Jesus that's done this. Right over and over again, this passage tells you the Spirit told Philip. The Spirit commanded Philip, and now here at the very end of the passage, the Spirit carried Philip away from the eunuch, right after the eunuch had been baptized. Right. So, in other words, the Spirit really is the main actor behind this encounter and behind the entire book of Acts. And here's the question. Right. Notice what happens here. The Spirit took Philip away, and the eunuch came out of the water rejoicing. Now, that's an incredible thing because I don't know about you, but if you were just converted and your pastor just baptized you. You'd be very thankful for the pastor, I, I would think, right? And yet, look at what happens. The eunuch saw Philip was no more, and he rejoiced anyway. A commentator said the eunuch could not have any attachment with the Philip figure here. And in fact, if you take a look at this passage, the eunuch might not have even known Philip's name. <laughs> here's here's the here's the thing, friends. If a gospel ministry is doing its work and it's it's done its job so well, there's a sense in which, if you've done your job so well, the congregation should have seen Jesus so well, rejoiced in Jesus so much, that the congregation would have a kind of sanctified indifference to the pastor. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that when you see Tazar again, you'd be like, "I don't care about you," right? I'm not saying that. Of course, be thankful and, and, and respect and imitate your leaders, right? The Bible says over and over again. But there is a sense in which, even when the pastor is taken away, it doesn't matter because you've seen Jesus, and that's the cause of your rejoicing, not the pastor. But Jesus, because if the pastor has done his work well, he's pointing you not to himself but to Jesus. That that if you go away from the ministry, from the sermon, you think about not the pastor but Jesus Himself. So here's the question, okay? And and this is something that's really important for the health of the church. Here's a question you should ask any church. The question is: If this church's pastor was taken away from them today. Would the church continue to exist? Any church you go to, here's how you determine the health of a particular church. If the pastor was suddenly taken away from them, immediately in a moment's notice, would the church continue to exist? Yes, lamenting for the pastor, sure, but they would still have Jesus, and that's what matters to them, and that's why they stay and remain the church. 
But the question is, if the pastor was taken away, and then suddenly there's a kind of fragility to the church, a kind of shakiness to the church, and a sense of impending doom, that the moment he's gone, the church is kind of going to be directionless. That's probably a sign that the minister's job, unlike Philip's here, has been pointing the people to himself rather than to God. And that's an incredibly sobering reality to the minister because we're tempted to do that. And how do we know Philip didn't do that? Not only didn't talk about himself, but notice in verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus and he continued to preach the gospel anyway. He was taken away from the eunuch and notice he wasn't insecure about it. He wasn't like, man, that guy could have led my worship team. I could have used him as, a, as, as someone that, that I could rely on, you know, someone that showcases the strength of our church because he's an outsider. He rejoiced anyway. I said, the minister, you, you're going to see people go away from Covenant City Church all the time, and they, they end up in gospel-preaching churches. It's not about you. That member's never been your member. That member's never been ours. They've been Jesus's because he's the head of the church. Take away the pastor. The congregant says, I have Jesus. We can continue. Take away a member. The pastor says, I have Jesus. They still belong to Jesus. That's all that matters. That's what determines the health of the church. And so Philip's example points us actually to the fact that Pastors are just under-shepherds, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he is growing his gospel and his kingdom here today. Friends, continue to contemplate on this gospel. Be included and see Jesus as the head of not only the church, but your own life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this incredible gospel message that you have included us into your people, and that though we should be cast out, though we should be excluded, though we should be, in other words, deserving of our own penalty and taking it on on ourselves, you took on the punishment for us and you were excluded so that we might be included. Father, help us behold this gospel in Christ Jesus, even as now we take on the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.